Pastors Michael and Brenda Brunzo welcome you and thank you for listening to the following message. This message was recorded during a regular service at Faith Fellowship Church. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we believe this message will encourage and strengthen you in your daily walk of faith. God bless you as you listen. Good morning. Happy Resurrection Sunday. So glad you could join us this morning. This is a day of great celebration for the Christian faith, and we're gathered here this morning on Facebook Live to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, please hit the share button to remind your friends so they can tune in and join us. We want to reach as many people as possible today. The resurrection is the most important, the most significant, and the most powerful event that has ever occurred throughout all of history. No single event in history has ever been more significant or has ever produced a greater result for mankind than the resurrection. The Christian faith is the only organization whose founder actually rose from the dead. The fact that we have a resurrected Savior sets us apart from all other religions. Every religion I know promises an afterlife, uh, at least an afterlife of some kind. But I'm going to be real honest with you. I would have a hard time believing in a religion uh, that has an afterlife if the founder of that religion didn't rise from the dead himself. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says that God not only raised up the Lord Jesus, but will also raise us up by his own power. So our Savior not only rose from the dead, but he promised us a resurrection someday. Now, some religions believe in reincarnation. Bless their hearts. They believe they'll come back in another form of some kind. Maybe a cow, maybe a horse or a frog or maybe a jackass. I don't know. But if that's all I had to look forward to, just leave me in the grave. The skeptic would say, how do you know the founders of these other religions didn't rise from the dead, and yours did. Mainly because you can go to their graves this morning, and you'll find that their remains are still in them. But when you go to the, team, to the tomb of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you'll find it to be empty, and the reason it's empty is because he rose from the dead. And not only that, but Jesus, the founder of our church, was seen after his resurrection and even performed miracles. The Bible tells us that he showed himself alive uh, after his resurrection by many infallible, inerrant truths, uh, appearing to his followers for 40 days and talking to them about things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He was seen by all the disciples and hundreds of eyewitnesses, that's good enough proof for me. And besides all that, the prophets prophesied his resurrection. Jesus predicted his own resurrection, even from the very beginning of his ministry. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, speaking of his body. He said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth or in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And he told his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, be killed, and be raised on the third day. Jesus said, I have power to lay my life down and power to take it up again. There's no doubt about his resurrection. 
It wasn't something that was done in a corner. It wasn't something that was secretive. I mean, why else would they place guards at the tomb if they weren't worried about him rising from the dead? I don't know what they were going to do. Maybe kill him again. I don't know. But the devil was trying to discredit the resurrection because he knew the resurrection would prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that God accepted the sacrifice in his son and that our sins would be forgiven. Paul said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then is your faith in vain and you are still guilty of your sins. But thank God he did rise from the dead. Thank God our sins have been forgiven. But before we go any further, I have to warn you, there's an Easter bunny out there lurking in the bushes. And he has lots of baskets filled with candy and eggs. But today it's not about the bunny. It's about the lamb. Now, don't misunderstand me. Our church celebrates Easter. And we've always had Easter egg hunts with prizes. And we make up baskets for all of the children. And we give candy and gift cards to our young adults, the youth group. And we even give all our adults a little bag of candy as they're leaving the church on Easter morning. So we don't have a problem with the Easter bunny as long as he's saved and he's kept in his proper place. But what I do have a problem with is when the world tries to take a fictional character like the Easter bunny and overshadow the real reason for this day, and that's the resurrection of our Savior. The devil always has a counterfeit. He has Santa Claus for Christmas and the Easter Bunny for Resurrection Sunday. And Easter, like Christmas, has become so worldly and so commercialized that we've actually lost the true meaning for this uh, joyous occasion. And the devil has been so busy getting all the Christmas shopping done, I mean, getting, having us get all the Christmas shopping done, or buying the right e- I- I- outfit for Easter that... We've forgotten the real reason for this season. As a matter of fact, I believe God is using this stay-at-home order to help us prioritize some things in our lives, like, for example, putting Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny in their proper place. I would love nothing more than to stand behind this pulpit this morning with a sanctuary full of smiling faces that are here in person and everything be back to normal. But we can't have that right now, so what do we do? On the other side of the coin, we begin to see that God is at work in this entire thing. He didn't cause it, but he will use it to his advantage. And these past few weeks through Facebook Live, we, along with other preachers, thousands of other preachers, have been preaching to more people than their sanctuaries can even hold. And these past weeks uh, through Facebook Live, Uh, We've been able to do things that we've never been able to do when things were normal and our churches were filled with people. We've been pastoring this church for over 25 years, and never once did we do a live broadcast, and uh, never anything even on a video, not even a recorded video. And we probably never would have done that if, uh, if it wasn't for social distancing. And so this has opened up a whole new world for the church. And, uh, I mean, we'd be happy to go back to sanctuaries full of of lives, people with smiling faces. But in the meantime, let's take advantage of this thing. Uh, God is working miracles at this time. And there are people that only come to church once or twice a year. And we call them CEOs, Christmas Easter onlys. 
And, but praise God, I've been preaching to CEOs now in the past three weeks on Facebook Live than I ever have in this church. And I think this is going to be the first time in a long time that preachers won't have to preach in the shadow of the Easter Bunny. And this is the first time in a long time that people will be able to focus on the gospel message because they don't have to worry about uh, all the traditional family gatherings and all the preparations that go with them, all the shopping that was done, wondering if this is going to fit, if that's going to fit, if this is going to match, or how this is going to look, and all the other things that overshadow the real reason for this season. People won't be worrying about how long I'm going to preach today either because I mean, they don't have to get home in time to get the ham out of the oven or hide the eggs or prepare all the other things that go along with the festivities. And as a matter of fact, since nobody's coming over, you don't even have to clean house. So this will be the first time in a long time also, (laughs) I'm going to say that the corridors and the aisles of our churches won't be turned into runways for the latest fashions and trends. Don't get mad at me. I'm just trying to tell you the truth. There will be a lot less gossip, too. I mean, how you doing, dear? Oh, I just love your outfit. And then as soon as she walks away, you say, did you see those shoes? And that they don't even match that dress. And that hair, what was she thinking with that hair? I mean, for the first time in a long time, I believe God is going to get all the glory today and, well, maybe you could talk about me. I mean, uh, oh, Pastor, you got the same old blue jeans and the same old boots and a casual shirt. Yeah, but the boots are shined. The blue jeans are clean and pressed. The shirt is clean and pressed. Yeah, but he don't even look like a pastor. Well, I'm not real sure how a pastor is supposed to look <laughs> or how a pastor is supposed to dress. The Bible tells me that we should dress modestly, and I think this is pretty modest. I mean, if you think a pastor should have a three-piece suit and a tie, that's fine. There's no problem with that. The Bible says he don't have to dress like that. But if we're going to start dressing like the Bible, then uh, I should be up here with a robe and a tunic. Amen. But, uh, yeah, you can talk about me if you want. I don't mind. Uh, There's nobody else here for you to talk about. Brother Darrell, but he's not going to come on camera here, but... Oh, hallelujah. My wife is a nervous wreck right now. She just knows I'm going to say something I'll regret. I might have already. I don't know. But for the first time in a long time, I believe God is going to get all the glory, like I said. (laughs) And since the physical doors of the churches are closed and people are, for the most part, confined to their homes, then I think we can say that every pastor and every minister of the gospel will have a captive audience this morning. I believe with all my heart more people will hear the gospel message today about the resurrection than any other Easter before. So I know God is at work in this thing. I know that he's working behind the scenes, and he's concerned about souls, and he's getting souls saved through these broadcasts. Not just ours, but all over the country. All right, honey, I'm done meddling now. I'm going to get ready to preach. (laughs) Are you all ready to hear the word of God this morning? Good. Let's go. I want, you to, I, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 4, and I'm going to talk to you today about a seed that was sown. Mark chapter 4, verse 26, Jesus spoke a parable, and he said, So is the kingdom of God. In other words, this is what the kingdom of God is like. 
It's as if a man should cast seed into the ground and should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up. He knoweth not how, for the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, in other words, when it's ripe, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. No farmer plants a crop without expecting a harvest to come. And so is the kingdom of God. It works like a seed that, it, that gets sown into the ground and produces fruit of itself. Now, God said in Genesis, and this is a law, every seed produces after its own kind. In other words, you plant an apple seed, you're going to get an apple tree. You, you plant a pear seed, you're going to get a pear tree. Tomato seed, tomato plant. Carrot seed, carrot plant. And, and in this passage of scripture, though, the seed Jesus is talking about is a kernel of corn. And so one kernel, he says, brings forth first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. Every stalk produces about two to three full ears of corn. So let's say you plant one seed and yield one stalk. On that stalk is three ears of corn. Each ear of corn contains, on the average, about 800 kernels. So now that one seed you planted has yielded you 2,400 kernels or seed of corn to plant next season. So the following spring, you plant 2,400 seeds, and they produce 2,400 stalks with three ears of corn on each stalk with 800 kernels of corn on each ear. So that's close to 6 million. It's about 5,750,000 kernels of corn for you to plant the next year. And so on and so forth. And this is a powerful concept of multiplication. Jesus said, that's how the kingdom of God grows. So is the kingdom of God as if a man plants a seed or sows a seed. And then he explains the process further in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. In John 12 and 35, uh, 23 through 25, Jesus said, now, is the time, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. Speaking of his death. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat, he went from corn to wheat now, but a seed is a seed. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But if its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Hmm. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Are we still talking about seeds or what? Did you notice the transition from talking about seeds and planting them in soil uh, to people's lives? Jesus went from the natural to the spiritual, from the natural to the supernatural, from the eternal to the not-so-eternal, or from the not-so-eternal to the eternal, actually. And there's some spiritual truths in this passage of Scripture, and we're going to get back to the seed in a minute, but first I want to take a little side journey. The last thing Jesus said in this passage of Scripture can really be confusing to a lot of people, as I'm sure it was to his disciples on that day that he spoke to them. He said, if you love your life, you'll lose it. And he who hates his life in this world 
we'll keep it eternally. And we live in a world where heavenly things can be confusing to our earthly minds. I mean, God is talking about infinite things, and we're thinking with a finite mind. And sometimes those things just don't compute for us. Heavenly things are spiritual and supernatural and almost always eternally. But earthly things are carnal and natural and short-lived. And when reading the Bible, we sometimes have to separate the natural from the supernatural, the spiritual from the carnal, and the eternal from the not-so-eternal. For example, the Bible says, we see things that are unseen. We conquer by surrendering. We find rest under a yoke. We serve by, or we rule by serving. We're made great by becoming small. We're exalted by being humble. We become wise by being fools. We are made free by becoming slaves. We become strong by being weak. And we triumph through defeat. And also what Jesus said, we must live or we must die if we want to live. Scriptures like these go against our carnal, finite, natural way of thinking. They're just not logical. But then again, God is not logical. And that's why we don't understand the way of God at times. We're trying to see the logic in something that God said, but there's no logic in it. Now, I hate to admit this, but for many years, you know, I worked for United Parcel Service as a manager, and everything we did had to be logical. We had to figure out uh, the logic of everything. And if we couldn't figure out the logic in it, we would scrap it. Because if it wasn't logical, it just didn't compute. And unfortunately, I took that into the kingdom of God with me. And there is no way you can understand God by being logical because he don't have to be logical. He's not logical. He never will be logical. So if something isn't logical to you and it doesn't compute, you just have to have faith in what God said and take his word for it. Amen. Uh, Again, if you love your life, you will lose it. That's not logical. That don't compute. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it eternally. Again, it's not logical. It doesn't make sense to our finite minds. If I want to save my life, I have to lose it? I don't get it. But Jesus was explaining to us in these scriptures that we just, re- uh, that we just read that like a seed, like a seed, he had to die so we could live. And we have to die if we want to live. In other words, before someone can be resurrected, unfortunately, they have to die. It seems painful, but it's true. The way we think and the way God thinks are sometimes completely opposite. That's why we have to be able to separate the natural from the supernatural and the carnal from the spiritual. God said through the prophet Isaiah, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, and my ways are far beyond anything that you could even imagine. So he's telling us here that we're not going to think like him. We're not going to imagine things like him. So we just have to take his word for some things. Amen. And it never hurts us to do that. That's where faith comes in. But Jesus told his disciples, in order to live, you have to die. And remember, they like us are thinking with a carnal mind. And that's not making them too happy right now. They're thinking naturally rather than supernaturally. So in their minds, they're not feeling too good about what Jesus just said. They're excited about eternal life and going to heaven, but not too excited about dying to get there. That reminds me, 
a pastor was preaching about heaven. And when his message was over, he said to the crowd, he says, everybody that wants to go to heaven, raise your hand. And everybody in the church raised their hand except little Johnny on the front row. Johnny didn't raise his hand. So the preacher asked little Johnny, he said, little Johnny, he says, why didn't you raise your hand? Don't you want to go to heaven when you die? And Johnny said, oh, sure, I want to go when I die. I thought you was getting up a busload to go today. And so just like the disciples, they wanted to go to heaven, but they didn't want to have to die to get there. Hallelujah. No one's in a hurry to die, and Jesus was no different. Even though he was looking forward to reuniting with his father in heaven, he wasn't looking forward to his death. But like the seed, he knew he would have to die in order to live. He would have to die in order to bring life, to bring fruit into the world. And when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, shortly before he was arrested, he was praying and really struggling with the things that lay before him. Specifically, the things that he would suffer on the way to the cross, and also the things that he would suffer on the cross itself. Jesus didn't want to die any more than you or I would. It was only natural that his flesh drew back in the face of death. The Bible said his soul was exceedingly sorrowful. Not just sorrowful, but exceedingly sorrowful. And the soul means his entire being, his spirit, his mind, his will, his emotions. He was really struggling. He was really suffering in the garden as he was praying. He was in such agony that the Bible says that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, the Bible says he fell on his face and prayed, Abba, Father, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now, this is just a little side thought, but Abba in the Aramaic language is best translated as Papa or Daddy. Now, I have some grandkids, and my my grandson Ethan, the 18-year-old, he calls his dad Papa. And then uh, little Tyler, my youngest one, he's 12, He calls his uh, father daddy. So this is kind of like Abba, father, Papa, father, daddy, father. It's very intimate, and it represents a description of a relationship that is on a level of unheard intimacy. Uh, And his relationship with God with God is only one that we could dream of. And it's hard for us to imagine that type of closeness, that type of relationship. But that's the type of relationship God wants to have with us, and he wants us to have with him. He's not just God anymore. He's not just Father anymore. He's Abba. He's Daddy. He's Papa. You don't get no more personal than that. And God wants to be personal. He was God to those in the Old Testament, and he became Father to those in the New Testament And the Jews to this day, your Orthodox Jew, has a hard time with that type of intimacy when it's talking about God. They can't bring themselves to call him daddy or call him papa. They can't even bring themselves to call him father. But the Bible says Jesus prayed that prayer three times. The same prayer, three times. 
Why would he pray the same prayer three times when he tells us to, that, uh, not to pray in vain repetitions? Isn't that a vain repetition? He prayed the same prayer three times. No, it's not a vain repetition. I know there's times that I prayed the same prayer more than once, but it was only because I didn't like the answer I got the first time. And I thought, well, if I pray it again, maybe God will change his mind and see things my way. And so sometimes we pray like that selfishly. And it's not really a vain repetition. It's just some bad praying. But in Jesus's case right here, Jesus prayed that same prayer three times because he was that appalled at the death that he was about to suffer. And he was that appalled at, uh, about the things that he was about to face. And he kept saying, Abba, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, let this hour pass. You know, uh, I don't want to go through what I have to go through. And that was really his flesh. That was the carnal side of Jesus that was talking. His flesh didn't want to die. And I understand that. Uh, but the Bible says that he prayed that three times. And at the end of each time that he prayed it, he said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. In other words, nevertheless, what I want to do, God, the main thing is that I do what you want me to do. And thank God that he did. Hallelujah. You know, the struggle of what he was about to face was so intense that, like I said, he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. The battle was so great that most Bible scholars believe that it was what he was about to suffer in the flesh. And, you know, the whipping, the scourging he received at the whipping post uh, by the Roman soldiers with a cat and nine tails. It was terrible. Uh, Isaiah says that it was so bad that when they were done whipping him, you couldn't even recognize his visage. In other words, you couldn't not only tell it was Jesus, you couldn't even tell it was a, a human being. His flesh was torn that badly that he was indescribable. And yes, that is something terrible to suffer. But I think that he wasn't, not, he wasn't just worried about the physical aspect of his suffering. Uh, and, and I agree with the Bible scholars in that respect. I mean, it would scare anybody to, to look at something like that and, and have to go through that, you know. But here's the thing. What was in that cup that he wanted to pass? All the sins of mankind was in that cup. All the sicknesses and diseases was in that cup. Along with all the pain, the suffering, and the ultimate death on the cross. All of that was in that cup. And that's enough right there to cause your flesh to recoil and to cause you to pull back and not want to have to go through that. No wonder he prayed three times. He was praying that God would let that cup pass. But thank God at the end, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. God strengthened him and he was able to go to the cross and finish his purpose on the earth. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But as bad as that was going to be, I don't think that Jesus really struggled with the physical aspect of pain. I don't think he really struggled with the uh, aspect of suffering and the aspect of dying on the cross. Yes, it was hard. But I believe the worst thing that was in that cup was spiritual death and separation from the Father. Jesus knew when he died, God would have to turn his back on him because he was full of our sin. He was full of our sickness, full of our disease. And that's why he cried on the cross, uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Lamach sabachthani, he said in, in the Jewish and Hebrew language. Uh, why have thou forsaken me? 
And he wasn't delirious. He said, why have you forsaken me? Because God forsook him. And you have to remember now, Jesus was with God from all eternity, from the beginning of time. He has no beginning. He has no end. He was with God all the time, and he left his eternal weight and glory in heaven, came down here, took on the, the body of a man so that he could die on the cross for our sins, pay the price for our sin. And now, even while he was on earth, he communed with God every day, every minute of every day. He still had a close relationship. He had an Abba relationship with his father. And now he's looking at spiritual death, separation from God, because that's what spiritual death is. It's separation from God. And that's something that he couldn't handle. That's something that he really struggled with. Jesus wasn't as concerned with going to the cross in the flesh as we think we, he was. He was concerned with what was going to happen when he gave up the spirit and he died, that he would be separated from his father for the first time in eternity. And that separation lasted three days before God rose him from the dead. That's why the resurrection is so important. God didn't leave his soul in hell. God raised him from the dead. And because he raised him from the dead, he will raise us from the dead someday. The Bible says that his soul was exceedingly sorrowful, and that's why. It went much deeper than a physical death. But thank God he submitted to the Father's will, and he went through with it for us. Thank God he did, because Jesus tells us our eternal lives are tied to his willingness to surrender his life and die for us. But when speaking of his death, in our opening scripture, Jesus spoke of planting a kernel of wheat and how that seed had to die before it could reproduce. How does this tie into his dying on the cross and the resurrection? I'm going to tell you. After the flood in Genesis chapter 8, when Noah was able to leave the ark, the first thing he did was built an offer and he offered up great sacrifices that were pleasing to the Lord. And as a result, the Lord established a covenant with Noah and with us that he would never curse the ground again or kill everything on earth as he did with the flood. And then God gave the law of seed time and harvest. He said in Genesis chapter 8, verse 22, While the earth remains, there will always be seed time and harvest, planting and harvesting, sowing and harvesting, and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Now, I don't know if you realize, but this earth is never going to end. It's going to be refurbished, renewed. Everything of a sinful nature is going to burn up. But this earth isn't going anywhere where there's never going to be an end of the world. When the Bible speaks of that, it's talking about an end of the age, an end of the church age and going into the millennial age and then from the millennial age into the eternal kingdom. It's going to change, but it's never going to cease to exist. And he said, as long as the earth is here, which is forever, there's going to be seed time and harvest. Even when we go to heaven, we're going to be sowing seed and we're going to be harvesting. And uh, there's always going to be cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. I don't know about you, but I like the four seasons. I like day and I like night. I like to sleep at night and be up during the day. And he says those things will never cease. So it's going to be a force that's in, uh, in play as long as the earth is here. 
It's a law because God said we're to live by it. It's a principle because we can apply it to all areas of our life. And the principle is this. Everything in life, like a seed, starts small and grows from there. But the main thing is that it has to be planted. Jesus' death was a substitutionary death. He died in our place uh, for our sins, for our iniquities. The prophet Isaiah says, speaking of Jesus' death on the cross, he said, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. So it was all uh, substitutionary. And then he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us. We've all gone astray. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. He says, we have turned every one to our own way, and the Lord hath laid on Jesus the sin of us all. It was our sin that he took to the cross, not his. He was a perfect, spotless lamb of God. He died for our sins in our place as our substitute. That's the first thing we have to understand. And then the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. The cost of sin is death. But we could never pay the price. The price was the precious blood of God's son, which Jesus willingly gave for us. He paid a debt that he didn't owe because we owed a debt that we couldn't pay. But his death and our eternal lives are entirely based on the law of seed time and harvest. That's why when he spoke of his death, he used the example of a seed being planted or being sown in the soil and that seed dying so it could bring forth life. If the seed didn't die, it couldn't bring forth life. If Jesus didn't die, he couldn't be resurrected. And like our scripture said earlier, we can understand the principle of seed time and harvest, but we don't understand how it works. All I know is I plant a seed in the soil and water it, and one day the seed breaks open, and, and in the process it dies. But when it does, a root goes down, and then a vine comes up, and branches grow out on the vine. And fruit grows on the branches, and then one day there's a harvest. Hallelujah. It's like a resurrection from the dead. Except a kernel of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it dies, it bringeth forth much fruit. And just like a kernel of wheat, Jesus was planted in death. But after his death, there was a resurrection. A vine went up, branches went out, and eternal fruit is growing on them branches. And there is a harvest coming and is coming soon. Jesus is the first fruit among many brethren. He was the first one to be resurrected to new life. He was the first one to be raised from the dead. And I know you're thinking, well, what about Lazarus? And what about the widow of Nain's uh, resurrection? Well, that wasn't a resurrection. That was a restoration to life because they had to die again. Jesus was the first fruit among many brethren because he was resurrected to eternal life. And our resurrection is going to be to eternal life. We won't have to die again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God is the farmer that planted the seed. He planted his son, Jesus, in the ground. 
And the Bible says in Isaiah that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to cause that suffering and to cause him to go to the cross and die and shed his blood for us. It pleased the Lord. How could it please God to do that to his son? Well, because God had the big picture. He was looking past his son. He was looking at his son as a seed that was going to die, but it was going to be resurrected. And as a result of that resurrection, much fruit would be in the earth. I'm that fruit. Brother Darrell's sitting there amen to me. He's that fruit. Every one of you, if you're born again, are a part of that harvest, are a part of that fruit. And it's our job to tell, tell everybody about Jesus because we're the branches. And when we tell people about Jesus, we produce fruit. And God wants to continue adding fruit until he comes again. James said, for the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it. I don't know why, what's keeping Jesus in heaven, what's keeping him from coming back, except the fact that one more day, one more soul, ten more souls, 50 more have to be saved here. He has long patience for it because we're producing fruit. Hallelujah. Every born-again believer is fruit from that one seed that was planted on a hill called Calvary 2,000 years ago. And that seed is still producing fruit to this day. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will, even after dying, live. How? Through the power of that seed that was sown. Thank God for the resurrection. I know I went a couple minutes longer today, but that's all right. I, I, I think what I had to say is worth listening to today. And if you're listening today and you've never accepted Jesus into your life, I'd like to lead you in a simple, short prayer. And all you have to do is repeat this prayer after me. It doesn't require any thinking on your part. Just repeat what I say. And I ask you to just believe what you're saying in your heart. You ready? Say this after me. Jesus, I want you to come into my heart. Please forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your spirit. I believe in my heart that you are Lord. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you rose again on the third day. And now, according to God's word, I believe I am saved. I am a child of God. Hallelujah. If you prayed that prayer a minute, welcome to the family of God. Please tell someone. Make a comment at the bottom of this Facebook feed and tell us so that we can rejoice with you. God bless you. We love you. Happy Resurrection Sunday. This concludes this message. Thank you for listening. We pray that it's been a blessing to you. For more information about FFC or its ministries, please contact the church office. God bless you, and remember, Jesus is Lord.